Good morning, Sun Valley Church. It is good again to be here with you uh, via video. It would be much better if we were together and there's rumblings of such things, but we're gonna continue to trust God for all these things, knowing that he is in control. None of this takes him by surprise. Uh, he has planned this since before the beginning of time and, and now we have the opportunity of responding uh, as loving, patient, gospel-centered, grace-filled people. And so uh, we're, we're anxious to, to be together, but at the same time trusting God for where we are and uh, how he has orchestrated the events that we're currently experiencing. I hope that you're uh, experiencing the, the goodness of God during these times and that you have uh, seen ways that God can use you and his gospel uh, to speak hope into the lives of those around you. Um, I, that has been my prayer that God would continue to build you up and use you, Sun Valley Church, in the lives of your family and your neighbors and friends and those you communicate with regularly. Um, I'm going to ask if you would join me in prayer now as, as we dive into the Word of God together and just um, pray that He would bless this time together. Holy Father, we thank You that uh, You have given us Your Word. I do pray that You would open our hearts and minds to receive it, to hear it. I pray that Your Spirit would do His work in us um, through it. I ask that uh, it would be clear and powerful um, as you've promised it would be. Uh, give me faithful utterance now as I speak these things from Philippians chapter three. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our savior, amen. Have you been enjoying our Philippians study? I know that it's, it's been tainted in a way because of, of how we're experiencing our study in Philippians, but nevertheless, it's still Philippians and it's a book of the canon. It's in the word of God. and. To me, it's been a wonderful study. My, my study uh, approach to the scriptures hasn't changed because I'm studying from my kitchen table, um, but it has been a wonderful study. I've, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, I've been so encouraged by all that the Holy Spirit's been showing me and teaching us through this letter from the Apostle Paul to a group of people that he loved dearly. Uh, we've been learning about what it means to be a joyful gospel partner. That's how Paul begins the letter, thanking God for the gospel partnership of these dear people in Philippi. And he continues that theme throughout the entire book, reminding them of what it means to be a gospel partner uh, and how we're supposed to act as gospel partners, what should be our priorities as gospel partners, how we should think, how we should treat one another. Uh, we learned uh, from a key theme of this letter that gospel partners are marked by joy. That is something, friend, that's been on my heart for a few years now. Ever, in fact, if you remember being here when we studied the book of Hebrews, God impressed that upon my heart during that study, the importance of being joyful Christians. And here again in this wonderful little book, uh, this little letter, Philippians, the, the theme of joy in gospel ministry, partnering with the Holy Spirit, partnering with the Christians who've gone before us, partnering, partnering with one another side by side for, this, for the case of the gospel, for the cause of Christ. Uh, what a wonderful thing. So we, we've learned from what we've studied so far that we should be joyfully and humbly preferring one another. We remember in, in chapter two, we studied that. 
just like Jesus did while he was here on this earth. And then we learn from three great examples uh, towards the end of chapter two that Paul gave us of gospel partners. He mentioned himself and how gospel partners are, are those who sacrificially but joyfully serve others, even in the midst of pain and suffering and hardship. And then we had the, the example of Timothy, who Paul said genuinely was concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. And that is something that gospel partners do. They're, they're genuinely concerned with the welfare of other Christians. And then Epaphroditus, that ordinary guy from Philippi, who they sent to minister to Paul's needs, who they sent to take a gift to Paul so that he could continue his gospel ministry. They partnered with Paul by sending Epaphroditus with this gift, and he almost lost his life in the process of doing it, but he continued. He worked hard. He kept after it because of the importance of the furtherance of the gospel. We've also learned in this study from the Apostle Paul uh, that we as gospel partners can be robbed of our joy. He said in chapter one that a poor perspective on our circumstances will rob us of our joy. He said in chapter two that selfishness will rob us of our joy. He said in chapter three that false doctrine will rob us from our joy. And so we need to avoid those things, Christian partners, gospel partners in the ministry. I pray that, that we would avoid those kind of things at Sun Valley Church that we would continue in joyful gospel partnership together. Today we find ourselves in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. I think you'll easily see how these verses tie into Paul's theme of joyful gospel partnership. Um, these verses we're going to learn or see today, learn what it means to have affections for the gospel, affections for God in the gospel partnerships that we find ourselves in. Listen as I read verses 10 and 11 of Philippians chapter 3. That I may know him, Paul said, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. To set the stage, let me draw your attention to Paul's logic in these verses in chapter 3. Uh, Verse 10 begins with the words that I may know him. So I want you to look back at verse 7 to kind of remember what Paul's talking about. In verse 7, Paul said, Whatever is to my gain or whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul had all sorts of things that he had accomplished, all sorts of pedigree that he could have been proud of, but he counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul understood that nothing compared to Christ and everything in his life before he met Christ was worthless compared to Christ. And this is what he says in verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth, the excellency, some translations use, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then in and then in verse 9, he, says, he continues that same thought, in order that may gain Christ and be found in him. Now he explains how can you gain Christ and be found in him. He then interjects this great doctrine of justification that I spent all last week speaking to you about. 
He says it this way, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the way, the only way that we can be found in him. This is the only way that we can gain Christ is through faith in the righteousness of Christ. Then verse 10, he completes his thought that he began back in verse 7. The purpose of gaining Christ and being found in him are what verses 10 and 11 are all about. So let's look at this. I have three points for you. The outline is online under the weekly liturgies um, at our Sun Valley Church website. And the first point you'll see there is more intimacy with Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him, Paul said, is the purpose of being found in him. The purpose of gaining Christ, that I may know him, is what he said. Now a careful reader would ask this question, didn't Paul already know Christ? Yes, of course Paul already knew Christ. Paul had live encounters with Christ. He had visions, he had heard audible voice of Jesus on the road to Damascus. This is where he personally encountered Jesus Christ. You remember in Corinth, Paul was discouraged with his gospel ministry there and was about to give up when Jesus himself appeared to Paul and said, Paul, listen, I have many more people that will yet come to know me in the city of Corinth. I want you to keep on keeping on. And so he met Christ in that place. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul encountered uh, Christ in a different way. He, he recounted his experience um, and it was a really an out-of-body experience, I think, where he met Jesus and heard what Paul said were unspeakable words, so precious, so heavenly, that he couldn't re uh, reveal them on the pages of Scripture. But here he says, after all this experience with Christ, Paul says, that I may know him. That strikes us a little strange, doesn't it? Since he already knew Christ seemingly so well. Um, but he says that I may know Christ. I, I, I'm certain that this is what Paul meant, that I may know him intimately, that, may, that I may know him more. Even after all my personal encounters with Jesus, I want more of Christ. I think Paul wrote verses 10 and 11 to let us know that even though he had all these personal, supernatural, and, and exceptional encounters with Christ, he wasn't claiming to be some super-Christian. No, he was saying, I want to know Christ more. Even though I've had all these things that, that are exceptional, I want more of Christ. He, Paul, just like us, wanted a genuine relationship with Jesus. He wanted to know Jesus as a friend. This is a confirming sign of Christ taking hold of you. When Christ takes hold of you, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, you reciprocate. You take hold of Christ. You run with Christ. You press on to gain Christ. Once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you thirst and hunger for more and more of that. If you have tasted a good meal at a restaurant, you want to return, right? You don't say, oh, that was really good and then never return. No, we all return to those things that we like, whether it's restaurants or relationships or recreation. If we like it, we return to it. Paul had encountered Christ. He had tasted and seen that Christ, that Christ is good, and he wanted more of it. When Jesus saves you, he implants an insatiable appetite 
for him. So Paul knew Christ, but he desired a deeper intimacy with Christ. Many contemporary Christians today are running around talking about their encounter with Jesus. I saw Jesus at my kitchen table today. I heard Jesus say I had a dream and he told me. So many Christians are actively seeking for supernatural meetings with Jesus. What Paul is saying here in verse 10 is that even after all those real supernatural encounters with Jesus, there was still an intimacy with Jesus that, that is different, more important, and unrelated to supernatural experiences that he had had. Friends, I have never seen Jesus, in case you wonder. I've never met him at my kitchen table. I've never met him in the mountains or out on a morning walk. I've never heard his voice audibly or seen a vision of him, and I doubt many of you have either. So is there any hope for us ordinary Christians to have the kind of relationship with Jesus that Paul is describing and desiring and, and we think he probably did have? Is there any hope for us ordinary types? Should we be pursuing those Pauline type supernatural personal encounters with Jesus? Well, I think a, an important takeaway from this intense desire that Paul reveals here in verse 10 is this. Intimacy with Jesus doesn't require dreams, vision, visions, audible conversations with Jesus. In fact, dreams, visions, and audible conversations with Jesus aren't intimacy with Jesus. Paul wasn't satisfied with all those other supernatural events that he had experienced. This is something different. Paul knew that intimacy with Jesus wasn't about supernatural physical encounters. Intimacy with Jesus is knowing Christ. Knowing Jesus. Do you know Jesus? I'm not asking you if you're a Christian. I'm asking you if you know Jesus. If all you can say is that you believe certain things about Jesus Christ then you are very young in your faith. You're a baby Christian. Believing certain things about Jesus is certainly important, but it's just the beginning of a lifelong journey into a deep friendship with him. We are to love God. We are to love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our goal is real intimacy, deep friendship with Jesus, and it takes a lifetime. Gospel partners desire intimate communion intimacy with Jesus. And the following things I think will help you do so. A pure heart. I don't mean a perfect heart. I mean a pure heart, one that Christ has washed. A heart that's soft, receptive, sin-sensitive. Like, like David, King David in the Old Testament. That guy was a sinner, well-documented sinner. And yet God called him a man after his own heart. Why? Because he had a pure heart. It was soft, receptive, and sensitive to sin. What else will help you in your intimacy with Jesus? A spiritual discipline. Not just a pure heart, but a spiritual discipline. Regular, systematic reading, study, meditation, and prayer. A, a, once, a, meal, a once a week meal isn't very good for you uh, physically or spiritually. I hope you're taking in Christ more than once a week. And then here's another idea, a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute minute 
intentional pursuit of Christ, uh, a relationship with Jesus that, that you work at intentionally. It might begin with giving yourself reminders to pray at, at nine in the morning, noon, and maybe three in the afternoon, and, and then before you go to bed. It may, it may mean putting uh, reminders of Bible verses or, or passages to read on your dashboard, on your car, or in your office, or on your mirror at home. But a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute minute pursuit of intimacy with Christ. Many times, unfortunately, it takes times of difficulty and heartache and tragedy to awake us to a place of intimacy with Christ. I know for personal experience and being in pastoral ministry for quite some time, that those generally who have an intimate walk and, and friendship with Jesus are those who've been through difficult things. So if you want good examples of what it means to have intimacy with Jesus, if that's a little um, uh, difficult for you to grasp what that means, I would encourage you maybe to read some Puritans. The Puritans were well known for this kind of lifestyle. Read Thomas Watson. John Flavel, Thomas Goodwin, Thomas Brooks, Jonathan Edwards. Read any Puritan. They intimately walked with Jesus. They knew Jesus. So is the goal of your life to know Christ more, as Paul mentioned here? Is, is the pursuit of your life, even on a daily basis, intimacy with your Savior? Would you be willing to part with anything of value if it meant you would gain more of Christ, that you'd be intimate with him? So is that your ambition, to know more of Christ? If I could offer you intimacy with Christ in exchange for your 401k, would you take it? If I could offer you intimacy with Jesus in exchange for your next five years of vacations, would you take it? If, if I could offer you intimacy with Jesus Christ for your home, your dreams, your plans, your job, your family, would you take it? So what are you doing, Christian friend, to cultivate more intimacy with Jesus? Not only does Paul want to know Jesus more in verse 10, he wants to become more like him. Look back at your copy. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So we're here now at our second point. Not only do we want more intimacy with Christ, intimacy with Christ but we want more conformity to Christ. That's what gospel partners desire. This is what we all do with people we admire, right? We, we try to imitate them. I mean, our children try to imitate us as parents. You and I try to imitate, you know, authors that we love and appreciate or, or speakers or athletes or whatever, you know. We, we, we want to imitate those that we admire. Paul admired Jesus like none other. He said knowing Jesus was of surpassing worth, nothing compared to Jesus, so it makes sense that he wanted to be like him. 
I want you to look down at your copy again and, and I want you to notice a word here, actually two words in the English, becoming like there, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like is, is a, an interesting word. Um, it's in Greek called sumorphizo. Sumorphizo, you've heard, you heard the word in there, morph, right? Sumorphizo. To be morphed into is the idea. To be morphed into Christ-likeness, becoming like him in these areas that Paul mentioned. This verb that Paul used is a passive verb, which means that Paul understood that this transformation into the image of Christ was something that God orchestrated. God did it. God must transform us. He must act on our affections if we're going to desire intimacy, if we're going to desire to be conformed into his image. God must pr provide that, accomplish that. All the things that Paul endured, his challenges, his disappointments, his losses, were all designed by God to accomplish the sanctifying work, that conforming into the image of Christ, that is God's will for every Christian. The author of Psalm 119, verse 32, you remember that psalm, right, says that he would run after God's ways if God enlarged his heart. God, just give me a passion, give me a desire and I'll do it, is what the psalmist was asking, pleading for. And then in verse 36, in Psalm 119, he pleads with God to incline his affection toward God. Make me want you, God. Give me a desire to be like Jesus is the prayer. This is one of the main themes of Psalm 119. God must be at work in us. That doesn't mean that we can sit by passively and, and do nothing. I guess if God hasn't made me want him, then I guess it's his fault, not mine. Do I need to preach uh, Philippians 2, 12 again? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it's God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. No, we are to work, friends. We are to work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to bring about these desires ourselves. We need to open the book and read. We need to pray. We need to meditate. We need to fellowship with the saints. So what specifically did Paul mention in verse 10 that had to be taking place in his life in order to be conformed into Christ-likeness? The first is there at the beginning, to experience Christ's power. He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Paul said, if I'm going to be conformed to Christ, I need the power of his resurrection. Now, you might be thinking, how in the world are we supposed to experience the power of Christ's resurrection? That was a significant surge of power, I would say. Now, let me say something to you. If you're an authentic Christian, you have experienced that surge of resurrection power in your soul. It takes that type of surge of resurrection power to raise you from spiritual death to spiritual life. This was the illustration in John 11 with Lazarus. It took Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, the author of life, to raise that dead man from the grave. It's the same thing in your life. It takes the power of God, resurrection power of God, to bring you to spiritual life. So in order for you to be an authentic Christian, you have had to experience resurrection power. This is something we see referred to, alluded to, in verse 9. He rehearses his favorite subject. You remember last week's sermon? The doctrine of justification? 
And central to this doctrine is the idea of being in Christ. The reason that we are justified is because we are in Christ. He took our sins and he gave us his righteousness. The only way that 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 can happen is if we are in Christ. Romans 6 explains what this means to be in Christ. And what an important reality this is. If we are in Christ, that means that we were in Christ when he died on Calvary. We died with him on Calvary, Paul explains in Romans 6. He died for our sin, we died to our sin. When he rose again, he, we rose with him to newness of life. That's that new spiritual life that came to be because of the grace of God in uniting us with Christ. We were reunited to a whole new spiritual life, that's spiritual birth, with a whole new focus on Christ and making much of him. The newness of life is this new Christ life that's given to every believer at the point of conversion. So becoming a Christian requires you to have experienced resurrection power, just like Lazarus. But living a God-honoring gospel partner life requires ongoing resurrection power, which is what Paul was referring to here. Even though we continue to be sinners, we have the power of Christ's resurrection to help us live this new life that we've been given and called to. So to those of you, those of us, I should say, who fail in the Christian life from time to time, um, and maybe fail more than you succeed, I, I would encourage you to pick your head up at this moment. Paul is saying that we, in fact, do have the power to live like God expects, to live like Christ did. We can be loving. We can serve one another. We can be obedient. We can prefer one another. We have his resurrection power in us. It comes with being in Christ. You remember in Romans 7 when Paul was lamenting his struggle to live out the Christian life. It was a painful chapter to read because we've all been there. We're all there now. But at the end of this great chapter 7 of Romans, Paul said, even though I'm weak and fail a lot, I have Christ living in me, giving me the power to live like he wants me to. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, he says. That's called resurrection power. Do you want to be like Jesus, Christian friend? Then you're going to need to have the power of his resurrection in you. In order to be conformed into the image of Jesus, we need to experience his resurrection power. We also need to empathize with Christ's sufferings. Experience his power and empathize with Christ's sufferings. You want to be like Jesus? You need those two things. I don't know a Christian who doesn't want the power of Christ's resurrection at their disposal. But how many of us want to share in his sufferings? Well, I'll sign up for the resurrection power, but I'm going to keep my hand down when, when they're handing out the sufferings of Christ. Paul said, I want all of Christ. I want his glorious power. I want his terrible sufferings. Any part of Christ I can get, I want, is what Paul was saying here. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings. That word share there in verse 10 is the word koinonia. Ah, you've heard that before, haven't you? Paul's used that same word before here in this letter. And it's been translated partnership. A, a partnership uh, in Christ's sufferings. Think of it that way. 
Paul is describing a gospel partnership in the sufferings of Christ. What does that mean? It means that part of Christianity includes suffering. We really have a theology of suffering laid out here that we could spend a lot of time on, but we won't. It means that, that when you come to Christ, you're not coming to a life of ease, of comfort. No. In Acts 14, it reads, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We can expect suffering. It's part of what we signed up for. And it's not even in small print. It's all over the New Testament. Becoming a Christian isn't an invitation to an easy life. So those who promote a prosperity gospel would be opposed to this kind of thinking that the Apostle Paul is describing. Partners are united through thick and thin. We don't just take the good stuff and say, I'm not interested in the bad if we're gospel partners. If we're partners with Christ in the gospel ministry, we take, we take the good and the difficult. We'll take the joy of victory and the agony of sorrow that comes with following Jesus. This is what God's gospel partners do. It's part of the process of becoming like Jesus. In fact, you can't, come be, you can't become like Jesus without walking through the valley of death and all the difficulties that are associated with that. This is, how, this is what conforms us to the image of Christ. Difficulties, James, Hebrews, all these books that we've studied all complement this. So do you want to be like Jesus? Well, Jesus suffered greatly. He was called a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. What did Jesus sorrow over? Well, he sorrowed over many things, but mostly over the effects of sin that he saw all around him. Sin grieved him deeply. If we are going to be like Jesus, sin must grieve us. Does sin grieve you? I want to clarify the difference between grief over sin and agitation over sin. I think a lot of times we think that since we're agitated by sin, that we're like Jesus. That's not the case. Sin didn't agitate Jesus. It grieved Jesus. When we encounter sin in others, a partner with Jesus in the gospel will be grieved, not agitated. Does sin bother you? Does sin agitate or grieve you? Not just your own sin, but the sins of others around you. Sin grieved the heart of Jesus. It grieved the heart of Paul. Does it grieve your heart? Are you sharing in Christ's sufferings over sin? In order to be conformed to the image of Jesus, we need to experience his resurrection power. We need to empathize with his suffering. And then we need to embrace Christ's death. Look back at your text. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's an odd phrase, isn't it? To become like him in his death. That word become like has a sense of being morphed into or transformed into the attitude that Jesus had in death, becoming like him in his death. What Paul meant was that he wanted to have the attitude Jesus did when he was going through his last few days. What was Jesus' attitude in death and approaching death? Well, he was gentle. He went to the cross as a lamb to the slaughter. He was quiet. He embraced God's will for him. You remember back in chapter 2, verse 8? He obeyed 
to the point of death on a cross. Complete obedience. He didn't fight, he didn't resist, he didn't complain, he didn't manipulate to avoid dying or to get his way. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. There's nothing more difficult than to willingly give up your life for someone else. You don't, we don't know what that means or what it's like right now, yet. Um, you want else, though, might be very difficult? Not just giving up your life willingly, but how about this? Giving up your time willingly. Giving up your resources willingly. Giving up your reputation, your leisure for someone else in need. This is the idea. This is what comes from being like Christ in his death. Is, is assuming his attitude towards his circumstances. But this is what Jesus did. And on top of all that, he did it joyfully. He didn't, he didn't take on the martyr's complex and, oh, poor me. No. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Not just his own joy, but the joy of the people he would save. For your joy. For my joy. He endured the cross. He, he came to earth and endured all his sorrow and suffering for joy. Paul said he wanted to be like that. I want that kind of attitude. I want to be joyfully and sacrificially serving others just as Jesus did, even to the point of death. I want an attitude like that. What are you doing to become more like that, Christian friend? Can you imagine if we had a church full of people like that? In order to be conformed to the image of Jesus, we need to experience his resurrection power. We need to empathize with his sufferings and embrace Jesus' attitude in death. More intimacy with Jesus, more conformity to Jesus, and finally, more worship of Jesus. Look at verse 11. More worship of Jesus. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you want more intimacy with Jesus and more conformity to Jesus, you'll certainly want to worship Jesus more in glory, won't you? That's what Paul's referring to. Paul wasn't uncertain of whether or not he would be making it to heaven. Some people misunderstand this verse as if Paul was uncertain if he was going to heaven or not. That is not the case. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wasn't uncertain at all as, as far as his eternal future was concerned. No, his uncertainty was about how and when he was going to die to be with Jesus. At some point, I'm going to die, whether it's by, you know, getting my head cut off or strangled or crucified or some way or another, I'm going to be with Jesus. <coughs> Paul knew that when he attained the resurrection from the dead, he would be in the presence of Jesus in glory and be able to worship him unfettered from sin, sorrow, or pain. Can you imagine that? Paul knew that once he attained the resurrection, he would be in the unfiltered presence of Jesus Christ, his Savior, that he loved so dearly. That was of surpassing worth. Think of that. When we're with Jesus in glory, there won't be any sinful thoughts distracting you from your laser focus on him. 
There will be no attitudes that will cloud your affections for him. There will be no apathy about worship to him, no struggle to be attentive, no sleeping through the service. Every thought will be centered on Jesus vitally, vitally, I should say. Every attitude will be blameless. Every intention will be faultless. Oh, what a day that will be to be focused on Christ with no distractions. That is why the Apostle John cried out at the end of his book in Revelation, even so, come, Lord Jesus. This is our great and certain hope as well, isn't it, gospel partners? Every gospel partner longs for that day. So our goals as joyful gospel partners from what we have learned this morning is to have more intimacy with Jesus. So what are you doing to cultivate more intimacy with Jesus? To be more conformed to his likeness. What are you doing to ensure that you're being conformed to his likeness? And finally, to look forward to being with him in glory one day. Worshiping with all the other gospel partners at the feet of Jesus. What are you doing to deepen your desire for that day? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your work on Calvary on our behalf. We thank you that you have this great plan that we've just reviewed this morning. I thank you that we can be looking forward to that day when we will be vitally present with you in full resurrection form, in the presence of other joyful gospel partners rejoicing in your presence. I pray that these things would be true of Sun Valley Church, that we would be a, a group of Christians, a group of gospel, joyful gospel partners who are pursuing intimacy with Jesus, that we are encouraging each other towards that end. I pray that we'd be also a group of joyful gospel partners that were, are seeking to be conformed and helping each other be conformed to the image of our dear Savior. And I pray, Father, now as we close our time together that each and every person here, each and every person watching, would look forward to that great and glorious day when we will one day be with Jesus our Savior in his presence, worshiping him forever and ever. I pray these things in his glorious name. Amen.